Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And in this season, season five, we are discussing all things tech ethics, and it is a riveting uh, season, I can tell you already, from the conversations we've had. And today, to add to that conversation, I'm really excited to tell you that we have our own Dr. Mary Lassity, who is a professor at the University of Arkansas and the Information Systems Group um, at the Walton College. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Cindy. I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, we are very fortunate to have you here. And in addition to being a professor in information systems, Mary is also on my academic advisory board for the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative. And um, we're doing a lot of fun work there in in tech ethics. Mary is not only uh, a professor here for us, but she also is one of the most prolific authors and researchers that we have at the university. She uh, has written over 30 books. Her most recent one is Blockchain Foundations for the Internet of Value. And her publications have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, MIS Quarterly Executive, IEEE Computer, uh, Communications of the ACM, many, many other um, uh, publications as well. So, Mary, we are just really lucky to have you here. I've talked to you before about how you possibly fit all of that in. And I know you've got a very structured schedule when you're writing uh, so that you can kind of get that in and still do all of the all of the teaching and the other things you do, like serve on my academic advisory board. So can you just start by telling the audience a little bit about who you are, um, okay. how you doing what you're doing and, and how you fit all this in. It's really amazing. Okay. Well, I don't think I'm unusual. This is just the life of a professor. Um, so I don't do it. I don't think I'm any, you know, uh, just more distinguished than anyone else on, on, in our, on our faculty. We all do research, we all do teaching and we all do service. So it's just sort of the, the nature of the beast. Um, and I know you rattled off this big, long bio, but Cindy, it's because I've been a professor since 1992. So I've been <laughs> around for a while. So you can accumulate books and publications over over time. And yeah. I guess, um, you know, why am I a professor? I do come from a family of teachers. So my mother was a teacher. My father was a teacher. My older sister was a teacher. So I always say that, you know, teaching is the family, the family business at the Lassity household. Oh, fun. Very neat. Well, and you've been some other places before you came to the University of Arkansas as well. And you spent time um, as a visiting professor at MIT and London School of Economics, WashU and Oxford. How did some of those experiences shape what you've now brought to us at uh, Walton College? Oh, I feel like I've been so fortunate and lucky. It was always research driven. So I would have, I'd be working on a research topic and I happened to find somebody at that 
university that would invite me to come for a year. So the Oxford one, which was always any scholar's dream, yeah. was I had met Professor Leslie Wilcox and he was doing work on outsourcing in the United Kingdom. And I was doing work on outsourcing in the United States. So we thought, wow, what if we got together and pulled our data and looked at this theoretically and mm -hmm. developed papers for practitioners. So that, that was just one example. And then probably the most recent one at MIT is because I was really interested in studying this emerging world of blockchains and yeah. how our organizations getting ready to do it. And I have some longtime colleagues at the center of uh, at the MIT Center for Information Systems Research, CISR, and said, do you want to come lead a project uh, exploring wow. how blockchains or enterprises are preparing for blockchain? So I did that in 2017. Wonderful. And then this position opened up, the director of the Blockchain Center of Excellence in 2018, and I applied for it and been here for three and a half years. It's been great. A perfect fit. And you brought just a wealth of information and experience and, and also really had this passion that I share, obviously, with you about ethics and integrity. How does that fit into business? And particularly, given your interest, how does that fit into tech, which I've always described as sort of it's, 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 the, it's the next greenfield, if you will, for the topic of ethics, which has been around, you know, forever. Um, the philosophical question about what does it mean uh, to be ethical? What does it mean to act with integrity? And then you have the, the business practical side of that as well. But with tech, which is just emerging and blowing up um, literally every day and becoming so much a part of our life, there are a whole host of new questions that haven't been answered, right? You can have some frameworks, uh, you maybe can come up with some principles and, and you can think about that, but the actual application of that to these new and sometimes yet unknown technologies is really where I think the fun is um, in figuring out like how how do we how do we how do we help guide humanity um, as we become more almost technologically dependent. You wrote a really cool article about this a couple of years ago, uh, which I want to start by talking about because it asks big questions like what do we think the balance should be and what is it between humanness and technology? What does it really mean to be human? So is this article that you co-authored with a couple of other folks called Can Computer-Based Human Likeness Endanger Our Humanness? So let's just start with what did you, what goal were you all exploring in that particular article? Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you. I'm, I'm delight, delighted to talk about that paper. So I did that with uh, Yana Pora and Michael Parks. These are two longtime friends and colleagues from the University of Houston. And it really just came about because at, and I wrote this a couple of years ago with them, as we started to see more of these agents in our homes, right? Like you've got these devices that talk to us and in our cars and on our phones, you know, we're just adopting these technologies and, you know, we need to be more reflective about it. And what was really starting to irritate me is when they were pretending to be a human being, like we anthropomorphize their, their programming logic. So when computers would say things like, oh, I'm so sorry for your weight. No, you're not. You're not sorry for my weight. You don't have any human emotions. You were programmed to utter that sentence, but you don't have any empathy or, or feelings. So we started looking at what are some design principles that we can come about. And I looked at something called speech act theory and Yana is really into philosophy of humanness. And we basically came up with, we can program computers to interact with us, but they shouldn't pretend to have human emotions. Mm. They shouldn't pretend to have psychological states. They can't be sorry. They can't have regret. They yeah. can't have empathy. So yeah. it's fine if we want these machines in our lives, but I don't 
personally like when we anthropomorphize, like we've created, like they're really showing human empathy when they're not. Yeah. Now that's a big word. So anthropomorphize, what does that, does that actually just mean them having emotion, acting as though they have emotions and speaking as though they will interact with us like a human, like I will do that for you next. As soon as you um, hit, tell me to restart or something. Is that, is that really what it's all yes, about? It's when we take anything that's non-human and yeah. we, we ascribe human attributes to it. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's, you know, there's so, there's so much of that. I feel like happening sort of with technology. It's like this line between where humanness begins and ends and where does the technology pick up really does get blurred when you start, you know, anthropomorphizing, um, uh, with the, with the technology. So what are some of the dangers that can come from that? What did you guys find in your article? Okay, well, first before, because I'm a professor, I like to show both sides. So yeah. this is this is not a fact, what I just said. Uh, you know, this is an ethical position that we're taking. Yeah. There are other right. people that'll say, oh, we should be anthropomorphizing our technology devices. So there's, we looked at all kinds of crazy technology, in our mind crazy, should probably be so, you such a value-laden <laughs> statement, but like um, if older people are lonely to develop a robot that talks to them so they're less lonely. So there are people that will say, we need to anthropomorphize our technologies and that it can lead to good outcomes. Um, I just feel like we need to keep having these conversations and just shouldn't automatically do that without being more thoughtful and reflective. So yeah. I did want to make I did want to make that thought. Uh, I did want to express that thought that this is my opinion. And it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. Totally get it. Okay. So I, I think what Yana and Michael Parks and I are concerned about is what is it to be a human being? Right. You know, what is it to have an authentic relationship? What is human bonding? What's a friendship? What's a romance? And when we're relying so much on technologies, I just don't know what's going to happen to our humanity. And so I just want us to be more thoughtful and think about these things while we're designing them. Because what often happens, and we could talk about this with medicine, we could talk about it with science and technology. We can do it, but when does the should we do it and how should we do it? That's right. And so, and you and I have talked about this before, Cindy, that you know, product development teams need to have some kind of an ethical aspect yeah. during development and right. use, right? And educating people on the use that we need to more closely marry our development and our use with our ethics. It, ethics mm. just can't come after the fact. Right. It's too late. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late. So that's kind of what we're we're trying to argue in, in uh in that paper. Yeah, but you can almost get a sense that kind of where we are right now in 2021 that we're we're looking at many instances where it's almost too late. You you wonder if those questions were really asked and answered appropriately at, you know, kind of the the front end of it. I mean, a, a lot of even large tech companies as you and I've now learned through many of our conversations have just recently started to recognize that they needed that voice at the table during program design and development. Um, and then it actually was a a, a, a a point of view that needed to not just be somebody's 10th thing they were thinking about, but yes. actually part of their job description, actually something you compensate people for so that so that people understood the importance of bringing those questions to the table. So yeah, I thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of what some of the companies that we're working with and how, thought, how thoughtful they're being. 
and some of it was prompted by the unintended consequences of technology. Yeah. Right? No company wants to put out something that ends up being uh, exposing terrible bias in their technology. So they're starting to look through their innovation cycles that we need feedback loops, uh, we need to be able to, to pivot, um, and we need to have this these more thoughtful design sessions about what could the ethical implications be. Yeah, and it, the should question, not it, it, it isn't, everyone gets very excited about what can we do, what can we do, and what how can do, we make yes. this, you know, this technology do more, and there's not enough, you know, stopping and pausing to think about the should. So, so let's talk about the, these digital assistants for a bit and about, you know, the humanness of, um, of the design. What kind of problems can that create for children? Well, first of all, children have great imaginations. They anthropomorphize everything, right? When you see little children playing, that's what they're doing. And, and I think that's very healthy. But we have to be careful about how much technology that we're imposing on our children. Um, many computer games, for example, are designed to be addictive. So when they're playing them, they're getting they're getting little happy happy hormones in their brains. Yeah. And so you know, parents really have to intervene on how much screen time they have, what kind of technologies that that their children are interacting with. So yeah, yeah I, but we, these are conversations we've had for a long time. Um, but I think they're they're really they're really going to become even more important as the next levels of technologies that come out are going to be right. more mobile. I mean, like we can talk about things like the metaverses that are coming, where yeah. it's almost like you're walking around like a Terminator where one of your eyeballs might have a screen. So that's your that's your connection to the artificial reality. This eyeballs in the physical reality, they're transposed together and it's mobile. So it's not like you're just sitting in, you're sitting still with a little console playing a game. It's like our whole world might become uh, way more a combination of, of a physical and an automatic augmented reality at the same time. Yeah. So let's go that there's a lot of conversation right now these days yes. about the metaverse. Some people yes. I talk to have some understanding. Others say, I've heard that word, but I don't even really know what it means. What do you, can, can you help us understand it? What is yes, the metaverse? It, well, what does it's that a, mean? It's a, it's a very general, it's a very general term that's been applied to, um, the term has been around for, for a while, but it is this idea that I just described that, you know, we will create av like kind of avatars and we will, we can live in these, um, you know, digital worlds. Um, now we've had this for a long time, like Second Life has been around for a long time, but what's different about this next version is we're, we're seeing models, and this is where the blockchain comes in, where instead yeah. of a computer arts company owning the, the, this virtual reality, that it's, it's really managed by a decentralized community. So kind of like the Bitcoin of the metaverse. Okay. Um, so I'll give you a good example. So probably yeah. one that's most interesting is called Decentraland and it runs on Ethereum, which is a public blockchain. And when it was launched, there's only 90,000 plots of land. So this, keep in mind, this is a virtual world, right? A virtual world. Okay. 90,000 plots, 90, plots of land. So okay. early people in there started, they use, they use digital um, currencies to buy these called mana. And some of them are now going for $100,000 because it's a fixed scarce asset. There's only 90,000 plots. And so now companies are thinking, oh, I want to be in this. I want the plot of land in the center. And anyone can, if you own the plot of land, you could build whatever you want on there. 
So you could build a, you could build something maybe that's constructive, like a little school, or you could build something like a virtual art gallery, or you could build a pornography site. Because once you own it, if you own the private keys, you can completely control that. So it is democratized, it is decentralized, it relies on all of our new technologies like blockchains and non-fungible tokens, and increasingly we'll have more interactive head devices on here. So it is very much early days, but that's kind of the excitement I think that you're hearing about the metaverse. And then of course, Facebook's big announcement about the metaverse. And right. if it's a large tech company, there it's going to be a centralized model. I'm uh, having a hard time seeing what the yeah. business model would be for a big tech company. Um, we'll have to see because there'll, there'll be new business models because of the metaverse. Yeah, yeah. And so the Wall Street Journal actually a couple of days ago had um, a really interesting 24 hours in in living in the metaverse, where one of their uh, young investigative journalists sort of went out with a, you have to have like a pair of glasses. I think it's like yes. the, the yeah. Oculus 2. Do you have a pair of the Oculus 2 glasses, no. by the way? For the no. virtual, oh. I'm thinking about putting that on my Christmas list, by the way, okay. but I better hurry up so that it can get here <laughs> with all the shipping delays. But anyway, that was um, 24 hours sort of living in, in the metaverse. Um, and what I found sort of interesting is there's those cryptocurrency kind of far out feels like almost play fun examples. Um, and there were some of those that she had, but then there's also that you can go into a meeting and you can actually sit and be in a meeting. You can like do fitness classes. She was showing sort of like, you know, through the metaverse, which makes you feel like you're really there. Um, you can climb up Mount Everest and, you know, and feel like you're really there. But what I heard this morning, which I thought was just kind of interesting too, and I hadn't thought about is there is some belief that our avatars will end up being smarter than we are. Uh, and because we're teaching them, put it in the business context of being in meetings and how we think and how we feel, go back to that about certain things and they will learn about us. Um, so they'll end up being smarter and they will end up, they don't get tired right? So essentially your avatar can be there doing business for you for longer and better, arguably, than what you could do just as a human being. Should we go there? Let's come back to the basic ethical question of not can we? Sounds like we believe uh, we can, but should we? Well, I, I think this is where our ethical principles have to come in, right? So we yeah. have to, first of all, we we get excited about these new technologies and we jump in. And Cindy, even I have made mistakes in the past. Like one of the things I really, really regret is that I did my DNA test with a, with a well-known company, mm -hmm. right? right? And how they hook us is everything's free up front. Uh -huh. Right. Think about, you know, it's really low cost or it's practically free. That's why we use all of these tools, right? You right. know, why we go to these browsers and type in things and we're giving away all of our data and leave, leaving digital crumbs everywhere. Yeah. It's because the services are free and we love the services. Right. But our risk, we don't think often thoughtfully think about the risks and the unintended consequences of the amount of use, uh, where we are leaving our digital crumbs across different platforms and things. Right. So, I think we need to be way more thoughtful about what we do. So I don't want to say it's going to be all good or it's going to be all bad. Yeah. It's just we have to we just have to make sure that we understand uh, what are the 
intended and unintended consequences of using these technologies. Right, right, right. And and from a platform perspective and a hardware perspective, Apple's ability, you know, which they've now done in their their latest software update of 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 letting you know different apps that can track you and what they're doing and giving you kind of puts it in front of you as opposed to you having to find it in the privacy policy to to say, you know, upfront, yes, I want the app to be able to use my uh, information um, for whatever it wants to be able to use it for marketing purposes, targeting purposes, or you, you know, you now have the ability to say no, but, but folks, our generation, let's say, seem to care about that a little bit more than at least my kids do. What, what, what do you think that is? Is it just a, back to this evolutionary difference of the way we're going to be communal as humans and this kind of crossing of, of humanity and technology, or is it just that the younger generation just isn't as informed yet? What do you think it is? I think it's the risk profile. If you go back to risk profiles, right. And we are risk profile changes over the course of our lifespan. Right. So even think about you're a mother, I'm a mother, the two year old that runs across the street no, without looking right. No yeah. sense of a risk profile. So it takes it. It takes them a long time to, to see the negative consequences of things True. where and sometimes they suffer terrible negative consequences before they think about it, like being cyber bullied. Right. Um, you know, they don't think about that until it happens to them. So I, I think the risk profile definitely changes over time. And that's our job as parents to protect mm-hmm. our children. And mm-hmm. that's why I think having limitations on the amount of times that a child spends on different devices and with different technologies, you know, and there's great value to going out and playing and disconnecting in your backyard. And, yeah. and I don't want us to lose that humanness. Um, it doesn't mean we can, you know, I'm not saying I'm obviously love technology or I wouldn't be a technology professor, but I love thoughtful uses of technology. Right, right. And you're right. Um, your risk profile changes. Uh, and probably as you get older, you become a little wiser as to, you know, the ways of the world. So it's incumbent upon us as well. Um, not just as parents, I would say, but as, you know, uh, professors and instructors and those working in higher ed to continue to try to get our younger students to understand um, what their risk profile is now and that it could change over time. So let's talk then about one more big topic, um, surveillance capitalism. It's another term Ah. that's actually thrown around a lot. What do you, what does that term actually mean again for people? Oh, great. Okay. I am going to, this is the fabulous Professor Zuboff from the Harvard Business School. Now this is not a light read, (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to show you that. Matt got on me for picking nice, big, thick books. But okay, it so this is, the, she's fantastic too. She's got uh, other more accessible outlets too. So her concern is big tech companies that are using our personal data and making money off of it. So the, the monetization of our activities and, and how they surveil everything that we're doing online. Right. So that that's her big thesis there, that big tech has gotten too big, that they're, that our privacy, we, we sign those privacy agreements, but we don't control or own our data. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with blockchains and why I fell in love with these kind of decentralized models, because in those worlds, we control our data. We own right. it, touch it, control it, decide who sees it. If we want to make money off of it, then we would make money off of it. Right. So it's going to change all kinds of business models. So yes. for example, instead of um, a big browser making money off of advertising, 
um, all right, I'll, I'll watch your advertising and you compensate me with some crypto. So yeah. all these business models are going to eventually change. I mean, we always say the technology comes first, the changing of organizations and business models can take quite a bit of time, but that's why I'm excited about it because it can possibly address her quite legitimate concern about surveillance capitalism. Yeah. So let's just stop there for a minute. I want to, I want to, I want to just, just, just make that point even a, a little more explicitly. So you're right. Right now, um, I have heard it said for years now, we are the product. It is our data as you know, the, and we're entering all the information in and we're just like offering it for free, giving it away, you know, but like you said, it's, it's all free and we want the services. So we give them our data, but there's value in that they're monetizing that. So to your point, if, if a company wants to monetize my data or your data or someone else's data, then it's like, okay, well, wait a second. Then if you want my data, you can have it, but it comes at a price potentially. Right. And then you, you know, there's that bargain and that negotiation for, all right, if you want my data, then you're going to have to pay for it. But do you think we could actually change the thinking that much? If like right now we've gotten so comfortable with everybody just doing it and doing it for free, well, we're doing it for free, but we are getting getting services, right? True, I mean, true. we are getting fantastic services, right? I yes. mean, at our fingertips is yeah. you, you type in something in a browser, you're getting great yeah. information. So I, I, there is an exchange there. There is an but exchange, but not on the front is. end of like putting in your data so that they could use it. It's what right, you get. But they're just yeah. watching what you're doing. That's where the surveillance comes in. Right. But yeah, that's why the, there's new models out. I mean, you there's are, there are browsers out there like the Brave browser that uh -huh. is based on blockchain technology that's not owned by a centralized uh, company. So there are, you know, but again, adoption is not the same as, as kind of the brand name ones, but you know, there, there are options out there. Wow. Wow. So the question is whether or not that's going to become more and more the norm as yes. opposed to the norm, the way it is today with the browsers. Very interesting. Um, okay. So we can't have this conversation about technology without bringing it kind of, I would say, back to an issue that we're still dealing with today, almost two years later, which is COVID. Um, and mm. there's been some really, I think, uh, well, there still are today, many ethical questions that are arising around how the world has has chosen to deal with this and and track it and, and be able to you know know whether or not somebody's had a vaccine or not and to know whether or not it's 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 actually a, a valid vaccine if you will and you've done some work in this space um, around digital health passes yes what, what is that how like what, what what is a digital health pest and how can it help answer this did this ethical question of are you okay. vaccinated are you not and is it valid okay so well, let me just say that again ethics have been driving this which i'm very proud of so um the we've belonged to like the good health pass collaborative there's over 150 organizations that are saying if we are going to track our health status and co your COVID-19 health status. And we are going to be designing digital apps that sit on our phone that show it this, that we need to do this in an ethical way, right. um, in a way that protects your healthcare data, because we've got HIPAA compliance and those sorts of things here. And of course, there's GDPR in, in Europe and things. Um, so it, I, I am pro digital health passes if they follow ethical guidelines. Yeah. Now, what is some principles of a good digital health pass? One is that they're actually pulling the valid healthcare credential from like your state 
immunization records that it's not some of them we've seen is like oh i feel fine today and then you get a green pass right, right. so one is one is that you can trust the data that it comes from an authentic source the other one is that i get to control this i decide who gets to see it mm -hmm. and i decide what they get to see do you really have to see where i got tested which vaccine i got or do you just need to know i don't have an active covid virus so we call that the principle of data minimization so that that's the one hand that's the technology you also need the regulation on the other side yeah. so where i've seen this work really well is in the city of new york mm. because new york city says before you can go into a restaurant or a gym you have to prove that you don't have an active covid virus that could be a vaccination a test etc the new yorkers walk around with the excelsior pass uh -huh. and, it, and it's so easy because it's just on their phone i had to walk around with multiple pieces of paper right <laughs> showing right. because i'm not a new york citizen but they had pulled all of that from the new york um, state immunization records so uh, that's an example, I, th I think, of one, we call it closing the trust diamond of the governing authority, the issuers of the credentials, the holder of the credentials, and the verifiers, like the people at the at the restaurant that have to verify it. So that's an example of, of, of a good of a good design. So in that example, though, maybe I didn't understand this part of it, you have to be a resident of New York in order to use it. You can't use it if you go well, to the city. You yes, because in order to, uh, they're pulling the vaccination ah, records right. and the testing records sure. from the New York state. And actually, New York City has its own immunization database. So in order to be in that if you're in those immunization databases, then you can use the Excelsior Pass. Yeah. So I, I, again, I don't know if it means that you have to be a legal citizen or, but if you're in that, right, if right, you're right, in right. those databases, right. then yes, you can use the Excelsior Pass. Right. And it's, I mean, it's so much better. I mean, I like you. I'm walking around with still my like little my my card that if it gets wet, it's probably just going to disintegrate. Or if yes. I leave it in my pocket <laughs> and put it in the washer and the dryer, I'm not going to have it anymore. And you know, ala, there you are. And that's also very easy, you know, it's very easy to, to forge those things. Yeah. I mean, even when I got my test, I could have walked off with a stack of them because right. they were just sitting there. So and just, you can yeah. forge those very easily. But if you're pulling the official record from an official database, then you can have some confidence in the, in the, uh, the, the authenticity of the data. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even Walmart has come up now with a digital health pass that if you've gotten your vaccine at Walmart, they also have a digital where and how that's yes. used as I still think a little unclear and hasn't necessarily been accepted. And, you know, in a lot of different places, like you're talking about New York, you they pull the records from New York and it's valid if you're in New York. So yes. it seems like there's a lot of room for growth here, but also we need to bring some, the, the, a lot of it is just disconnected. It's not, doesn't feel like it's, it's, it's widely accepted broadly around the world yet, or that there's been enough connections uh, to the different digital health passes that are out there, but it's well, it really does depend on jurisdiction. So some jurisdictions are are you have governments that are mandating this. Some of them have have some states have mandated no, you can't have them. So yeah. um, it really that's why I said New York worked because of the legislation and the fact that they the the government paid for this digital health pass yeah and did the data polls to make sure everything's good they made it convenient and easy for the citizens to use it i mean the app is very very easy to use uh, the only tricky part is you have to do what's called identity binding so you know, how, what's to prevent me from walking around with somebody else's phone. So uh, when you are at a, a restaurant or a gym, it's not enough to just look at the digital health pass. They also ask for like a driver's license Got it. to, got to it. do the match. So we call that identity binding. So we got have it. to do that. Got so. it. Okay.
Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yes. We go on, you and I in particular could probably go on for days talking about it. But before we leave for the audience's sake, I know you showed us the one great book about surveillance capitalism, but in case somebody wants to go a little bit deeper, you know, kind of beyond your article or that book, do you have some other good recommendations on resources? I, I do. And I'm going to make them very friendly and accessible, Cindy. Right. So the one thing I think all of our students should watch is The Social Dilemma. It's available on Netflix. You'll see you'll see Professor Zuboff in a little soundbite there. It'll just sensitize them to um, their, digital, their digital crumbs that they are leaving on all their social things. So I think it will be sensitizing and it's very accessible, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Got then it. the other thing you're gonna laugh that I recommend this. <laughs> I recommend that people watch Star Trek, The Next Generation. It still holds up. We just went through the whole series again. What I love about it is so much of technology is dystopian yes. when you look at the future. And this is not, this is really saying, you know, there's no money in Star Trek because we've evolved beyond money to where we promote human dignity and human values. And it's all about self-actualizing mm -hmm. um, and everybody in that. And, and, and there's great equality uh, that you see. I love mm -hmm. the prime directive. Don't give technologies to civilizations that haven't evolved enough to know how to handle it. So anyway, I love the next generation. I think it presents a world where we can see ethical uses of technology that uplift mankind. Yeah. And that's the way that they should be, you know, if we're going to be fully evolved as human, at least in my opinion. And I think uh, from an ethical perspective, yours too, those are two great suggestions. So let's leave it there and um, uh, watch Star Trek. If you have some time <laughs> or the social dilemma, either one, I think those are great. I'll pick that up over the holidays. Mary, thank you so much for thank this you, conversation Sandy. and for sharing your time and your thoughts and your wisdom with the audience. I know that uh, everybody will take a lot of, away from it and it was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.